Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. This episode serves as the third part in our series on John Dugan's new book, Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives. Today, we're hosting a panel discussion on the counter-narratives that are found at the conclusion of each chapter. We're fortunate enough to be joined by John and three of the counter-narrative authors. Uh, so let's get started with introductions, and for the sake of time, I've abbreviated most everyone's bios, uh, and I will say that uh, I'll say that because everyone here is much more impressive than my uh, introductions will indicate. So uh, my first guest is Dr. John Dugan. John is a professor in the higher education program at Loyola University of Chicago. Prior to his academic appointment, he worked in administrative positions in higher education at the University of Maryland and the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. John also serves as the principal investigator for the multi-institutional study of leadership. Relevant to our discussion here today, John is also the author of the recently released book that's the subject of this conversation, Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives. We're also joined by Mary Morton. Mary is the president of the Morton Group and and is a consultant, activist, and filmmaker. She is currently at work on a follow-up to her award-winning documentary, Woke Up Black, with a new film focusing on fatherhood in the black community. Uh, We are also joined by Art Johnson. Art is a co-founder of Equality Illinois and co-owner of Sidetrack Chicago. Art has been a gay activist since the 1970s and is married to Jose Pena, who is also uh, the co-owner of Sidetrack. They've been together since 1973. And finally, we are joined by Georgiana Torres-Reyes. Georgiana serves as the Assistant Vice President for Mission and Values at DePaul University. She also serves as a consultant and facilitator of dialogue on issues of diversity, social justice, advocacy, education, and leadership. Welcome, everyone. Hello. 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 Okay. So, John, let's uh, let's start here. Uh, I was hoping we could start with you and get a little context for these counter narratives. So, uh, how do these stories feature in the book, and what was the origin for this idea? Sure. So, uh, to be very candid, I think that these stories become the heart and the soul of the book that bring to life all of the research, all of the theory that's presented within. And part of what we discussed as a, a wonderful team of researchers who worked on this project was how do we amplify the voices that are often left at the margins in the extant literature around leadership studies, and in particular, the voices of people who were deeply integrating their identities into work of leadership for social justice across disciplines. So we didn't want to just focus on education, but across all of the varied ways in which people engage in leadership. And so the, the narratives emerged as sort of a central feature for us to bring to life the theory, but also really alter how people think about leadership. Okay. Great. And uh, just a quick follow-up, what sort of prompting did you provide to the counter-narrative authors? Sure. So they might disagree. So I'll be curious to see if you all remember it this way. (laughs) But I'd start by sharing that the counter-narratives were generated through a research process. So this wasn't just let's sit down and and have a a coffee-side chat and then let's throw that in the book. But we followed um, for listeners what is a critical narrative research protocol. So that engages a lot with a conversations around power, around story, around voice, and how to amplify those. And so um, our protocol started by reaching out to people and saying, would you have these conversations around how you think about leadership, uh, power, privilege, and oppression, and the way that that is uh, played out in your own lives, and ask for folks to tell us a little bit about themselves, and, and then get into stories that really brought to life the struggles of what it means to engage in this work around leadership for social justice. Is, I'm curious, does that seem like what you all remember? Uh, it is to me, yes. 
I would agree. Yes. Mary? Yes, that's accurate. Great. So, uh, Mary, I uh, was hoping that we could start by discussing your first counter-narrative. In that piece, you talk about moving back into a prominent role with an organization close to your heart and that you helped found. Uh, you talk powerfully about the necessity of knowing how to step back and realizing uh, how to do all kinds of important work behind the scenes without people ever knowing uh, your level of involvement. So, what are tactics you've employed to be successful in leading from behind? Sure. Well, let me say that I will probably often refer to uh, this idea around building relationships because at the end of the day, um, that is key to all of this work, um, at least from uh, the vantage point that I've, I've worked over a number of years. And when trying to support people in a leadership role from behind, if you will, or out of, out of sight in some ways, I think the first thing is to make sure that that, that, that person, in, a, in fact, wants and welcomes that support. I think sometimes we make assumptions about the kind of support someone may need, and I really believe in being direct and offering support and making sure it's okay and really talking about how we're going to work together in a way that puts that person front and center. And so that's, that's been the number one step in, in trying to support a new leader, trying to model leadership. I think that's really critical, even in terms of how um, the person, the, the aspiring leader, if you will, and I interact is an opportunity to model how I certainly hope they will work with someone else um, that they have the opportunity to work with. And so I think from the very first uh, interaction and through the relationship building process, I really try to figure out what's going to work best for this person and try and, in terms of supporting their leadership development. Okay. Thanks. So, uh, Art, in your narrative, you talked about an interaction with Mayor Harold Washington after the human rights ordinance in Chicago failed for the first time. And you recall him saying, this was the quote, uh, the best lesson he could ever teach us was to never rely on him to do it for us. Uh, what implications do you think that notion has for social movements in general? Uh, well, it was critical to us. And it seems to me that any movement for social change begins as the movement of a minority, the tendency is, of course, to begin with the paradigm of, please, sir, may we have some power. And you must move quickly, if you want to be successful, into a wholly different mode, which is not that you're looking for someone to grant you power or influence, but rather you develop a strategy and execute it to achieve the power yourselves. And that can be a very difficult lesson, especially when you begin as a minority and you really think you're going to be able to convince the majority to, uh, to bend the ways of doing things to include you. The reality is, of course, that you have to do it for yourself. Okay, great. This is John. And, Miles, I have to chime in here because I, I think hopefully what we're hearing in both of those responses, you know, Mary, it stands out for me when you talk about relationality and our relationships as the foundation, and then our, this notion that how we engage in this can't just be from a position of uh, pretending power doesn't exist and hoping people will do things for the right reasons, but that we're engaging in ways that um, 
instill agency, uh, sort of step forward to say, we'll, we'll do this in relationship, but we, we're not going to wait for change to happen on its own. And one of the things that we heard very directly from students when we piloted this book was those two points validated things they weren't being taught about leadership to begin with, particularly the power aspect of all of that. Yeah, great. So, uh, Mary, I wanted to, to uh, pivot to your second narrative, and you talk about your work with the National Organization for Women in Chicago, um, and the narrative covers the initial lack of understanding within the group about the lack of participation of black women. Uh, you mentioned, and this was your quote, you can't just expect people to come out and get involved. You've got to bring people to the issues and make it personal for them. I actually think it's short-sighted of leaders not to acknowledge that reality. Um, I, I totally agree, and I uh, wonder, how do you think that that short-sightedness, um, the sort of lack of recognition about the practicality of some issues, impacts effectiveness? Well, you know, I, of course I think that we're, we're not being particularly effective because of this uh, short-sightedness, and um, I think there are some communities where I'm starting to see that change. Um, however, again, I have to go back to relationship building, right? When I sat in that Chicago Now office in the late 80s, uh, when I walked into that office, um, I met actually somebody who became my mentor, um, and really everything that I have done around leadership and service through board development, all of my community-based work, really the, I can lead the line back to not only my mother, but in particular this woman, and I just want to uh, mention her name, it's Sue Purrington, who recently um, who recently died, and it was that kind of relationship building and our ability to talk about ways to really, um, really work with other black women so that they would also reap some of the benefits of the na of the work that Nash that now was doing on a national level, and and so again it was this idea that we're going to talk very directly, and understand that just because we build it, people will not come. How are we connecting with communities in a deep and meaningful manner? It cannot just be about the photo op. It cannot be about, you know, the optics. We have to have meaningful relationships with people. That's how you build coalition. And so when we don't do that, we are not effective. And we've seen that throughout the history of many of the communities that all of us probably represent. Um, also, in particular, we saw it certainly in the LGBTQ community, most recently around marriage equality. Until there was a diverse coalition built, marriage equality did not pass in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we just have to understand and, and, and internalize in a way that I think we, we still have some work to, to, to do on that particular, um, particular area. Yeah, no, I think that that's, I think that that's uh, convicting stuff, and I think that it, you know, it's a very natural connection with, the, with your uh, sort of overall theme of relationship building there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Georgiana, I was wondering, uh, so your first counter-narrative in the book focuses on your high school experience as a, an, an extreme minority, and you spe specifically talk about how engaging in positional leader roles helped you overcome bullying and ostracization. Um, in the narrative, you recall the process of achieving these roles and how much that impacted you. I wonder if you believe that the actual skills acquired as a positional leader at your high school or the process of being accepted into those roles more contributed to your overall success in that, in that uh, environment. Niles, I, 
I believe it was a combination of these things that led to a positive experience for me, but acceptance ultimately was probably the most significant. Again, we're going back to this theme of relationship that's so significant. Um, being nominated or elected into a role is a really different thing than being accepted into a role. Um, my first step, right, was being voted in or nominated or how, whatever the process was. And that took some campaigning skills and strength in selling my product, which at that time was myself. And once I was in those positional leader roles, I needed to use my skills and my knowledge and my story and my passion to assist whoever had voted for me to understand that they should actually believe in me and follow me. Um, that's what acceptance is. It's the building of relationships that are based on trust um, and an understanding that I will really do what I say I will do. Um, and until a community understands that they can trust you and be with you in that, um, and that you will do what you claim you will do, you likely won't find yourself in a position to create change or to lead. Um, yeah, so that I guess the balance of using the skills that you obtain in any role as a leader, there's always um, a skill set that you develop and things you can add to your tool belt. Those were important, but ultimately acceptance, uh, building a relationship with a community that believed um, that we were headed in the same direction, that their vision was my vision, um, and that we could do that jointly was what enabled me to have a really ex a positive experience in that community where I had faced you know, a good amount of um, adversity. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think the question itself might have been a little bit of a, I, I, I think you uh, gracefully point out there that the question itself may have been a little bit of a false binary, right? Like you, you know, the skills that you gain are not, you know, mutually exclusive from the, from the feeling of being accept, accepted. So. Um, Okay, Art, so uh, you've had a distinguished career in advocacy and cover a lot of convicting ground in your narrative, and I wanted to discuss something you described near the conclusion of the narrative. You credit much of your work to, and, and this is your uh, quote from, a narrative, from the narrative there, I went somewhere when something was going on and got involved. Um, and I suppose this leads me to wondering how much do you think making the first step matters in the path of leading towards change? Wow. Well, for me, the number one directive for any individual, I learned this from myself, and making social change is very simply, you must show up. Hmm. And because there is no second step, tenth step, thousandth step, if there isn't the first step of showing up. And that, of course, applies to everyone else that you want to get involved. You must find ways, Mary spoken eloquently about how you how you uh, help find ways to get people to show up. But showing up is the number one piece. And I must say also that in uh, a world where virtually showing up uh, can be helpful and important, it still does not take the place. No online activity of any kind can take the place of actually showing up body and soul and being present where things are going on. And that's how things start to happen. One of this is John. So one of the things that's incredibly um, validating for me is our research team Miles met yesterday, and so we're doing extended work with all of the interviews from our guests today uh, around research questions. And so some of the meta themes that have come out from our conversation yesterday as a research team are exactly what folks are talking about, and are a part of what what 
I hear you articulating is this notion of accidental activism. Sometimes we show up in places and the intention is we go for one reason and then we find ourselves involved for an entirely different set of reasons. Um, but if you don't make that first step and we don't commit to the relationships that we have, begin to foster them, it becomes so difficult to actually effectuate change. Um, and I don't think people hear that part of the story. We see pictures and narratives of, of leaders who are heroic, who it seems as almost if they're painted from day one as having been in the midst of um, the crisis, when we know it's that first step on the journey that helps people feel like they can take a similar journey. So I'm really appreciative of that. So I was hoping to gather everyone's thoughts on this question, and I felt like this was really a theme of the counter-narratives, but Art, you definitely addressed this uh, concept the most directly. Um, how, has your view, how is your view of leadership different now than when you first considered or encountered the concept? Well, it's, uh, I, I'm so interested in this question because, frankly, for a long time I did not uh, – think that I was being affected by this sort of thinking about leadership, studying it this way. But what I realize is that I am much more able to talk to other people and talk to young, quote-unquote, young leaders because of the thoughtful process that working with John Dugan and, and our other folks has put me through. So I feel like I have gained enormously understanding more about uh, uh, about how to articulate uh, the pieces that I think can help to uh, to make the social change happen. After all, studying, from my point of view, studying social change, studying leadership is of no value unless it leads us to be able to do a better job of social change mm -hmm. and leadership. And, and that's what's come out of this for me. Mm. Okay. Uh, Georgiana, how about you? For a really long time, and even now on occasion when I'm tired and not on my game, I believe that leading really had to include, you know, fireworks and bells and whistles. And, you know, leaders were loud and they were front, front and center and they always knew they were where they were headed. Um, and they were the power in a group or a movement. I mean, I saw these pictures. I heard these stories about leaders. That's what they were. They were heroes. And I've come to find that, well, yes, um, leaders are often heroes um, that are the effective ones, the good ones, the ones I want to ad admire and, and reflect back in my own work um, are heroes, um, that really they have to listen. They may at times be front and center, but they're, they must also understand clearly what it means to lead from behind. Um, they've got to be able to watch from the sidelines, and they've got to be able to walk next to and with those that they lead. Um, they've got to be pushing from behind. Um, leaders need to be able to deal with ambiguity and have a clear vision in mind, but they have to understand that the process of attaining that vision may take on shapes that they never imagined because of the impact and influence of the people that they are intending to serve. And I guess ultimately effective leaders also must learn that power, when shared, creates more power. It's sustainable. It allows for growth. It allows for success. And sometimes that power is nowhere near their person or their hands. It needs to be elsewhere. Um, yeah, that's uh, 
I have to be reminded of that. I never learned something on the first try. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a really convicting idea, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think there are real implications of the idea of power and opportunity uh, as, uh, you know, as not being finite resources, which I think mm-hmm. they are sometimes thought of as. So, yeah, it's a really... Really interesting idea. Um, okay, Mary, how about how about you? How is your uh, how is your view of leadership different now than when you first considered the idea? So I have a lot to to uh, say about this question, and I'll try to streamline it, uh, particularly in light of some of the comments that are um, have been made, which I wholeheartedly agree with. As a consultant and as uh, an activist or an advocate. Um, Leadership development shows up for me in different ways in both those uh, contexts, if you will. And I think that what is consistent is this idea around um, really working with how important it is, I would say, to work with people who have the most, who have the vested interest in whatever that particular issue or concern, challenge may be. And while that seems simple, I think really trying to work with um, other people to make sure they get it, how important it is for people to be their own best advocates in every way possible. Um, Certainly I learned that uh, in my initial work at Chicago Now around uh, the pro-choice movement. And while I didn't necessarily think that was something that down the road I might need to avail myself of. I, I absolutely understood from a very early age, growing up in a very Catholic family, why I needed to fight for a woman's right to have control over her her body and, and, and sort of, um, plan, you know, family planning. And so I think this idea around um, realizing, to Art's point about showing up, it was really important that I show up because there were I was often the only black woman in the room or one of a few, often the youngest, talking about an issue that we know from historical uh, work and, and references that black women absolutely were part of the pro-choice movement. Black women do, in fact, you know, for instance, get abortions. But, we, you know, we just didn't talk about that. And so this idea of showing up, I think, is a consistent one. And I would also have to say to understand that we have to approach this work with some humor, which may seem odd to say, but I can't tell you the number of times when if I didn't have the ability to laugh about the absurdity of some things that we're addressing, I really wouldn't be able to continue. Um, even in my own, you know, my own uh, Morton Group work um, as a small business owner, as a consultant, we are doing a lot of work around racial equity, a lot. And I'm thrilled about it because we should be. Um, and really talking about intentional uh, and, I would say, intersectional advocacy, right, how we get to bring all of ourselves forward to our work in a way that is productive and efficient and and all those pieces. And so um, humor throughout all this is really important. As I will often say to, you know, my team, this work is very important, um, and we do it because we think the organizations that we work with are doing really great work but we are not curing cancer. I wish we were. And we need to keep things in some context so that we, we just don't, you know, sort of move to the next level in a way that is not productive. Um, and so trying to laugh about it all and, and, and work with people in a way that is going to be supportive and meet them where they are has been critical to how I've, I've thought about leadership development over a long period of time and just understanding meeting people where they are and bringing them along 
is going to be very important if we're going to be successful down the road. Okay. Oh. Great. All right. And John, how about you? So I feel like the I feel like the preface to the book was kind of your uh, your attempt to uh, to address this question as well. So. Yeah, and we've talked before about sort of my evolution of thinking around this concept of leadership, but what I might reframe is how it's changed from being a part of these interviews with our participants. And I think, you know, there's two themes that have played out for me that I think I always connected to leadership, but not in a purposeful, intentional way that I learned from the stories of our participants, which is um, first and foremost, the importance of uh, sustainability. So um, George, Georgie talks about sustainable resources uh, in terms of stain and struggle, which I think is incredibly important um, that I hadn't sort of positioned as central to this work prior to that. Um, and, and seeing folks who have been doing this for an extended period of time around multiple social issues and lots of different spheres of influence, I think, um, has shifted the level of importance of that for me in my own thinking. And then the second is, um, I think, you know, reflective of what everyone has shared, which is that we have separated activism and leadership as, as two separate things. And so for me, I felt much more comfortable in the activist home. Um, these interviews for me provided a source of validation as I was writing the book to say it's problematic that we divorce these two things. Uh, and so I, I don't think I would have gone as far as I did in the book if I hadn't had the validation from all of the participants that we need to be disrupting this false dichotomy between activism and leadership. Um, because certainly there's unique skill sets to each, but when we say that activism isn't leadership, we're essentially um, partialing out, I think, as, as a means of control, um, as a means to say that it's episodic and not sustainable, um, these efforts for social change. So I have a huge thank you to give to the participants for that. Yeah, so John, just a follow-up there. Uh, I mean, a, a huge theme in the conversation is the book, uh, in the book is talking about uh, the problem with the story most often told in leadership. So how do you think that these narratives can and will and do impact the story most often told in student leadership programs? Yes, I think they, they do it in, in a variety of ways. And so, you know, I think functionally um, at the end of a chapter that has sort of theories that may appear uh, to, to, to sort of have a very structured way, well, it's easy, leadership is neat, it's tidy, it unfolds like this. The stories disrupt that and say that's not the way the world works. For theories where there is no sense of relationship, um, you have a story like Mary's that recenters relationships and says you can do all of this, but your degree of effectiveness will largely be a function of something absent from the theories. And I think, you know, they also begin to then shape the stories of, of folks who are not told in literature. So way too often we either default to these heroic myths um, that feel very distancing and hard to imagine ourselves uh, doing, whether that's um, Malcolm or uh, JFK um, or any of those sort of large, larger-than-life people where you don't always know the full story behind what's happening. Um, and then I think, you know, Mary brings up the point of intersectionality. All of the participants in, this, in these stories are operating from multiple, multiple intersecting identities that play out in how they show up in spaces, how they mobilize, what it means with how they engage. And so I think that then also shifts the dialogue. So identity isn't 
occurring in a vacuum and it's happening dynamically as people engage um, in their lived experiences around leadership. And so I think that plays out in the narratives and helps to disrupt. And, you know, there's, let me share one anecdote with you um, that's very personal. So uh, I, I will share, um, I have not always seen myself in the leadership literature, and perhaps the greatest gift of this book writing process has been this research study, to be able to sit with folks and then to watch graduate students interview and come back and see them come to life um, around these conversations they had. So two students coming back from an, uh, uh, a meeting with Georgie, literally crying as they recapped what happened because they saw themselves for the first time in this process or they connected in a vulnerable way um, or someone who sat with Art or Mary and then came back and said, wow, I now have a framework for I could do this. So uh, there was one student in the process who said, you know, I have never thought of myself as a leader. That is not a, a term I like. It's not a term I ever would position myself as. In this story, Art Frames, I didn't position myself as a leader either at the beginning. And so that normalization of experience is huge. And, you know, the last piece I'll share here is um, I had a student who shared with me that they kept in their portfolio, they photocopied out of the book one of the narratives and kept it in the back of their, their uh, calendar planner all semester. And as things were getting rough, for them, they would pull it out and read it. And I think that's why these really are at the heart of disrupting the story most often told because they're doing something for people where they sense it, it's almost a relationship is created where someone sees themselves in the literature. It helps them to see how they could act instead of be passive. And it gives them a sense of critical hope that perhaps wasn't there before. So for me, I mean, I, I cannot even begin to express my gratitude for these folks who are on the call with us today, Miles, because their vulnerability and sharing, their insights um, really have shaped what the end product of all of this is, and I think will have a lasting impact for the folks who read the book. Okay. All right. So, Georgiana, I was hoping that, uh, that we could uh, end with you. So, uh, John gave you the, the proverbial hammer to close this book, and I, I just I, – I, I think you really did. So uh, in that narrative, you discussed your process of deciding when and how to advocate within uh, institutions, and it's really compa uh, compelling, powerful stuff. Um, there's so much that I'd like to discuss here about that particular narrative, but I guess my question for you is, how do you gauge when to directly work for change versus times when you were trying to, and this is you know, quoting a, a big part of your story, make yourself feel good? Well, I, I'm hoping I understand the question well, so I'll answer it and, and you can adjust, make adjustments where you see fit. But first of all, this mouth has gotten me in so much trouble, I can't even begin to tell you. So at some <laughs> point in my life, I really did install, and I'm not sure how I did this, but I installed a, a hum system. And this is what happens. If my, if my value set and my words or my actions don't really match up or are really in direct conflict with each other, later in the day, I will find myself humming and replaying that conversation or that action, that situation. Um, and so if I catch myself humming really loudly in the middle of something and replaying this, I know that I've got to take the time to sit, <laughs> review, and figure out what went wrong. 
Um, now, that mechanism doesn't always work. Um, I don't always catch myself. Um, so when that doesn't work, I feel like when I find myself alone, that tells me a lot. So let me explain what I mean. Um, I may be receiving accolades from others for some task I did or some project I created or some activity um, that I've moved forward. And I may be feeling great um, about that, those accolades. Or I may be looking over evaluations and looking at how many people were in the seats or how many fives they scored on an evaluation. But if I'm doing this and I'm the only one celebrating, it's usually a clue into the fact that there were others who were left out. Um, there were others who were not transformed by my work. There was a change that didn't happen. Um, so when those I intend to serve or those I intend to lead are in the space with me, contributing to what I'm designing or critiquing my plan or telling me what's wrong with it or that it doesn't meet needs or um, in conversation and dialogue about something, um, when those I intend to serve are receiving accolades, when they're receiving acknowledgement, when they're achieving success, when I'm sitting watching them be who they want to be or do what they want to do, um, when those I intend to serve or those issues that I want to push are getting press, they're being talked about, they're on, the, on people's minds, they're on people's hearts, then I know that I'm actually being effective in work for change. Um, when I'm on the stage alone, I can be pretty certain that, I'm, that something is more about me or my ego or, or my intention and my agenda than it is about someone or something else that I intend to serve, change, make better. Does that make sense? And does that answer your question? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it does. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a really useful, useful way to think about things. And I think that that is just a, I think that the question that, that, uh, that you were, I, I felt like part of what you were wrestling with there in the counter narrative was, you know, the, uh, the responsibility of advocacy and, you know, I, I just think that if you're celebrating by yourself, uh, concept is really uh, convicting and I think maybe can be a, a useful way to think about things for folks. Thank you. So I just wanted to close quickly with this question for everyone. So uh, if you were going to provide one piece of advice for aspiring leaders, uh, what would you choose? And let's start with Mary. Um, so. Um, Miles, I want to answer that question from two different perspectives. One, if you are an experienced leader, then I think it really behooves you to look for people who are exhibiting leadership skills, which happens all the time. However, they may not have someone who is going to support them on this journey. And someone did that with me. Um, I, I, I was very, very shy uh, as a young person, which people find hard to believe, uh, however, really shy, and I started taking drama classes, and next thing I knew, I was, you know, doing all kinds of work at Chicago now, and, and you know, mm -hmm. that's how it all started in many ways, but someone saw something in me and said, oh, would you like this opportunity? Do you want to do this? And I never turned it down, so I think that's really important. If you are the person who's aspiring and wants to be in leadership roles, then you find someone, a person or a group with whom you can have meaningful conversation. That is what got me in the door to Chicago Now, which was my first official sort of organized 
work as an activist, as a volunteer activist, but there were women with whom I could have these extraordinary conversations, and it made all the difference. And out of that group, I found the person who, you know, became a mentor. And so I think that's really important. We, I don't think we can um, – We have to. I think we have to underscore the value of having someone who you can go to with questions and concerns and doubt. There's a lot of doubt, right, when you're doing this work, even today – there's a lot of doubt. And so I think it's really important to have someone that you can speak to and then read every you can, everything you can about the subject. I think that's really important. I did that when I was starting out my career in association management and, and supervising staff at the age of 24, people who were old enough to be my parents. And so I read everything I could. I sought out um, other people to, to talk with, and I think that's really going to make a huge difference as as people – uh, make their journey toward greater leadership opportunities. Okay, great. Uh, how about you, John? Sure. So I think um, one of the things I walked away from the narratives on is a renewed piece that I have certainly centered in how I, I, I teach now around the importance of critical self-reflection. So for me, so much of this means really digging into your a person's own positionality. So if you're going to engage with others, build relationships around um, these compelling social issues we want to change, you really have to have an ongoing mechanism to think about who am I, what are my identities, how does it, what does it mean for me to show up as a white cisgender gay male in this environment, what does it mean for other people to show up, how might vulnerability look different in these settings for me versus someone else, and then strategically integrate that into the process. Um, I think we talk about leadership without the strategic part because that word may trigger for some folks um, inauthenticity or uh, a lack of values, but they don't have to be um, oppositional. I think part of what I learned from these and what I would recommend people to think about um, based on these narratives is how each person was strategic in decision-making, whether it's um, do I make a decision right now to intervene on this issue and what are the implications of that or art talking about the importance of what is your laser focus on your outcome and what gets you there versus noise that might um, cause you to invest in things that won't have an outcome at the end of the day. Uh, and so I think that coupling of positionality and critical self-reflection with strategic approaches um, gets lost sometimes. And so I think that would be a, a piece of advice I would give folks to think through. Okay. Georgiana, how about you? I think there's um, two things that I think are critical for um, aspiring leaders. One of them is the gift of listening. It's critical. You need to listen to who you intend to serve, what do they really want, what do they really need. Listen to those who are barriers to your work. Um, what do they want and need? And what about your plan, ideas, what your, your style rubs against theirs, and where might there be common ground? You've got to listen to the community and the context. Um, listening is critical. And, and maybe I say this because I have found myself to be such a poor listener sometimes, <laughs> such a good talker. Um, but listening is critical um, before making the move. Um, and then the other thing is that a moral compass um, that is strong, that is regularly reviewed and reflected upon is also critical. Um, your value set has an absolute impact 
on how you will lead, who you will lead, and why you will lead, where you will lead. Um, and if you're uncertain about what those values are, values change. They change over time, I think. They develop. They grow. Um, we buff them on the ends and we shine them, and sometimes we, um, we refresh old values. Um, but if we don't have an idea of what those values are, um, what, what that means for how we engage and interact with other, and um, what power and privilege we have in a space, it's difficult to work with integrity and authenticity. Um, and nobody is going to follow you if they don't trust you or believe in you. And if you don't understand who you are, it's difficult to get others um, to believe in and follow you. Um, so, so the two things, listening um, and um, keeping a good and healthy moral compass of uh, values and ideas, thoughts um, that that are pretty stable and that you understand for yourself and can articulate to others is really important. Miles, can I ask for a favor before we end here? So uh, you've had some really thoughtful questions for all of us around what it was like to participate um, and the graciousness of our participants in this process of creating the counter narratives. But as someone who sat and read the book, um, I'm curious about your perspective around what it adds, um, the role it plays, and um, what you took away from all of this. So I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm very curious about your own take on this. John Dugan, making me live on the spot. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I would say that my experience reading the book and, uh, and experiencing the counter-narratives was that uh, they are one of many things that make this book worth the uh, time that I personally have devoted to it um, and make it more than just a textbook. And I um, am in many ways uh, in awe of the folks that were on this conversation with um, after uh, reading, after reading uh, their stories. I 100% agree that I think that these narratives have, um, you know, have the potential to give people a sense of critical hope um, and are, you know, really disruptive to the story most often told. Um, and I think that the counter-narratives are, uh, are living proof that really pops off the page of the idea that, um, that leadership can be a force for uh, democratic good and can be uh, a thing that brings a lot of tangible, positive, wonderful change to communities as opposed to being something that we are unhealthily dependent on or um, so, yeah. So, I mean, that is my, uh, that was, you know, my reading of the, of the narratives. And I think they're also just a, you know, a wonderful change of pace. I mean, the book is very, uh, is, you know, it, in parts very theory heavy. And so it's nice to be able to when you've been, you know, weaving in and out of the nuances and complexities of, you know, three to four to five different theories in a chapter, it's nice to get to the end and have these, uh, these really beautifully written um, narratives that provide a, uh, that provide a, a real lived sense of what, of what those concepts were actually talking about. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I know you love it when I put you in the spot. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's it's easier with this book. It's not like I, you know, I've read all of these narratives like three times at this point. So if I don't have an opinion, then something's probably wrong with me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so Art, we didn't uh, we didn't get to you. If you were going to provide one piece of advice for aspiring leaders, what would you choose? Well, mine is almost, <clears throat> excuse me, simplistic and follows up on my notion earlier about you have to show up. You have to find things that, that, that mean something to you and show up where people are working on those things, where they are marching, where they're discussing, where they are protesting. Get to where things are happening and then volunteer. In other words, make a commitment and carry out your commitment. You will quickly, uh, as an inspiring leader, you will quickly develop a reputation as somebody who makes and keeps commitments. And that is, I think, absolutely critical to any leadership. So my piece is simple. Show up, take on some kind of responsibility, and do a damn good job of it. Mm-hmm. And pretty quickly people will realize that you are serious about getting things done. Mm. So. Yeah, I say uh, a lot of times to, to students here that um, be someone who likes to make promises to themselves and then keep those promises. Um, I think that that's a, you know, I think that you yourself are kind of the only person you can ever really keep a promise to. So, um, all right. So, well, uh, that is it. So thanks everyone for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Thanks so much to Dr. John Dugan. He'll be back with us for the rest of the Cultivating Critical Perspective series, and you can connect with John on Twitter at John. Uh, Dugan77 and Leadership Theory Cultivating Critical Perspectives is uh, available uh, out there on the interwebs. Um, And thanks so much to our wonderful guests and counter-narrative authors, uh, Art Johnson, Mary Morton, and Georgiana Torres-Reyes. You can get more information about the knowledge community on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SALead, on Twitter at NASPASLPKC, and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S, underscore Surrett, that's S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program, so please shoot an email to nasthaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.